Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our lecture series on adult reconstruction. This lecture will focus on preoperative planning, techniques for balancing in the coronal and sagittal plane, and techniques to ensure appropriate patellofemoral alignment. A lot of this information will be the basic principles of total knee arthroplasty, making the information non-controversial and thereby highly testable. As always, we will focus on key testable material while keeping a broad clinical perspective. Alright, let's get started. We will begin by discussing alignment in total knee arthroplasty. In its simplest terms, the surgeon's control over axial alignment depends on the distal femoral and proximal tibial cuts. There are four goals to keep in mind prior to making your cuts. The first is to restore the neutral mechanical alignment of the lower extremity. The second is to restore the native joint line. The third is to appropriately balance the ligaments, and the fourth is to maintain a normal Q angle. So first, let's discuss some commonly described biomechanical principles and anatomic considerations. So what is the mechanical axis of the limb? The mechanical axis of the limb is a line drawn from the femoral head down to the center of the talus. With neutral mechanical alignment, this line will pass through the center of the knee joint. With a varus knee deformity, the line will pass through the medial compartment or even outside of it in severe deformities. With valgus knee deformity, the line will pass through the lateral compartment or again outside of it in severe deformities. So there you go. The mechanical axis of the limb is the center of the femoral head to the talus. It is important to remember the normal anatomy of the distal femur is in 5 to 7 degrees of valgus while the proximal tibia is in 2 to 3 degrees of varus. Therefore, on an AP radiograph of the knee, it will appear as though the joint line slopes downward approximately 3 degrees from lateral to medial. Another way to remember this is that on a lateral radiograph, the lateral tibial plateau will appear higher than the medial tibial plateau. Now let's talk about the difference between the anatomic axis of the femur and the mechanical axis of the femur. The anatomic axis of the femur is a line that travels down the center of the medullary canal. Where it exits on the distal femoral condyle will be the entry point for a femoral medullary guide rod for the cutting jig. The mechanical axis of the femur is drawn from the point at which the anatomic axis exits the distal femur to the center of the femoral head. The important principle to remember is that the distal femoral cut is 90 degrees perpendicular to the mechanical axis of the femur. The angle between the anatomic axis of the femur and the mechanical axis of the femur define the valgus cut angle. This is typically between 5 and 7 degrees. Because the cutting guide will be placed down the anatomic axis of the femur within the intramedullary canal, we will typically set the guide between 5 to 7 degrees of valgus. In individuals that are very tall, it may be less than 5 degrees, and those that are very short, it may be greater than 7 degrees. The reason for this is that the length of the femoral neck, or what we would consider the femoral offset, rarely changes significantly with height. However, the overall length of the femur can change significantly and therefore plays a greater role in determining the valgus cut angle. The anatomic axis and mechanical axis of the tibia follow the same principles. The anatomic axis is defined as a line which travels down the medullary canal of the tibia. Where the anatomic axis exits the proximal tibia determines the entry point for an intramedullary guide. The mechanical axis of the tibia is a line from the center of the proximal tibia to the center of the ankle. The proximal tibial cut is perpendicular to the mechanical axis of the tibia. 
This is an important concept to keep in mind, and both the femur and the tibia cuts should be perpendicular to the mechanical axis. This allows for even loading of the implanted components. In most patients, the anatomic axis and mechanical axis of the tibia are the same. Therefore, the cut angle will be zero degrees. However, if there is a significant deformity of the tibia, either from a pathologic process or a prior fracture, the anatomic axis is bowed, and then it becomes important to follow the principle of cutting at 90 degrees perpendicular to the mechanical axis of the tibia. In these situations, an extramedullary guide, typically with a guide rod centered over the proximal tibia, referencing the medial one-third of the tibial tubercle for placement proximally and distally is dropped down to the center of the ankle to reference the mechanical axis, must be utilized. Overall, remember that your cuts are perpendicular to the mechanical axis. When determining the depth of your bone cuts for both the distal femur and proximal tibia, it is important to consider resecting the least amount of bone while still allowing for an appropriate cut. This principle is known as measured resection. This is the concept of maintaining the native joint line height by inserting a prosthesis that is the same thickness as the bone that was resected. This is not always possible, especially in cases of significant bone loss in which bone grafting must be utilized so that the joint line can be maintained. Maintenance of the joint line will preserve appropriate ligament tension and function. If the joint line is elevated more than 8 millimeters, it can cause patellofemoral tracking issues, midflexion instability, and patella baja. Lowering the joint line may lead to a lack of full extension and flexion instability. Remember that value as it has been tested in the past. Keep the joint line elevations below 8 millimeters to optimize the function of the ligaments and musculature. Next, we will address issues of coronal plane balancing. With significant varus or valgus deformity, the ligaments will become stretched or contracted depending on the direction and severity of the deformity. These deformities can be thought of as having a convex and a concave side. On the concave side, the ligaments will have contracted, while on the convex side, the ligaments will have stretched. The contracted ligaments will need to be released, while the stretched ligaments will need to be tightened, generally by replacing their worn away cartilage and bone with an appropriate size prosthesis, which recreates the native tension. For a varus knee deformity, the medial side, or concave side, has become tight, while the lateral side, or convex side, has become stretched. So therefore, we will need to release structures on the medial side and reestablish the tension on the lateral side. The medial releases are performed first. First, it is necessary to remove any osteophytes that have developed on the medial side. As you can imagine, these osteophytes would cause tenting of the medial collateral ligament, thereby tightening it. After we remove the osteophytes, we resect the remaining medial meniscus and deep portion of the medial collateral ligament in the medial capsule. In most primary knee arthroplasty with a varus deformity, these releases will be adequate to achieve an appropriately balanced knee. If, however, the patient is still tight medially, the next step is to release the posterior medial corner, including the semimembranosus and posterior medial capsule. If the patient continues to remain tight, the next step is to release portions of the superficial medial collateral ligament. If you think back to our sports medicine lectures, you'll remember that the semitendinosus and gracilis lie just superficial to the superficial medial collateral ligament and can act as a good landmark for finding it. It is important not to release too much of the superficial MCL or the patient will develop valgus instability. Remember that the MCL is a broad ligament with components anterior and posterior to the rotational axis of the knee joint. The anterior fibers of the superficial MCL tighten in flexion, while the posterior fibers of the superficial MCL tighten in extension. 
Therefore, if the patient remains tight medially with the knee flexed, the anterior fibers can be released. While if the patient remains tight with the knee extended, then the posterior fibers can be released. Now let's move on to balancing a valgus deformity. Conceptually, we can think of this as the lateral side is now concave and the lateral structures have tightened, while the medial side is convex and the medial structures are loose. So again, we will start with resecting any osteophytes that have developed on the lateral side. Following osteophyte resection, the lateral capsule can be released. After an osteophyte resection and the capsular release, we will range the knee to see if they are tight in flexion or extension. If they remain tight in extension, the IT band can be released off Gerdy's tubercle. And if they remain tight in flexion, the popliteus can be released. The popliteus release is done by releasing the anterior aspect of its insertion off the lateral femoral condyle. Occasionally, with severe deformities, both structures will require some degree of release. The lateral collateral ligament is generally the lateral collateral ligament is generally released last, if at all. So remember, LCL is last. One last point to mention, and I will mention it again during the complication section, is that a patient with a severe valgus deformity and flexion contracture is at the highest risk for developing a postoperative perineal nerve palsy. Let's talk now about how we address a flexion contracture. These releases are typically done after anterior and posterior distal femoral cuts have been made. In this situation, the concave side is the posterior side and requires releasing of the tightened structures creating a flexion contracture. The first step is to remove any osteophytes from the distal femur. Following removal of the osteophytes, the capsule is released. If the patient continues to be tight, the medial and lateral origins of the gastroc muscle can be released as well. These releases are performed with the knee at 90 degrees of flexion to decrease tension on the vascular structures in the back of the knee, allowing them to fall away from the joint and decrease the risk of injury. Alright, let's move on now to sagittal plane balancing, also known as gap balancing. This is a favorite subject of question writers. The extension gap is the distance between the distal femoral cut and the proximal tibial cut. It looks like a rectangle when it's viewed from the front. The distance of the extension gap is controlled by the amount of bone resected with the distal femoral and proximal tibial cuts and the tightness of the posterior capsule. The flexion gap is the distance between the posterior femoral cut and the proximal tibial cut with the knee flexed to 90 degrees. It also looks like a rectangle when viewed from the front. In fact, ideally, it should be an identical rectangle. The distance of the flexion gap is controlled by the amount of bone resected on the posterior femoral cut, the proximal tibial cut, and the PCL if it has been retained for a cruciate retaining prosthesis. The goal is to have the flexion gap and the extension gap be exactly equal. McPherson's rule is a general rule for gap balancing. It states that if a gap problem is symmetric, meaning tight in both flexion and extension or loose in both flexion and extension, then adjust the tibia first as it plays a role in both flexion and extension. However, if the gap problem is asymmetric, then to adjust the femur first. The last principle to remember is that upsizing or downsizing a femoral component changes the size from the anterior to posterior direction and has nothing to do with the overall height of the prosthesis. Therefore, it will only affect the flexion gap without changing the extension gap. Keeping those three principles in mind, many of the sagittal gap balancing questions are fairly straightforward conceptually. If a patient is tight in extension and tight in flexion, cut more proximal tibia. If the patient is loose in extension and loose in flexion, use a thicker tibial polyethylene insert. Again, symmetric problem, tibia first. If the patient is tight in extension and balanced in flexion, 
cut more distal femur. If the patient is loose in extension and balanced in flexion, use augments on the distal femur. And finally, good in extension and tight in flexion, downsize the femoral component. Good in extension and loose in flexion, upsize the femoral component. The takeaway point is to remember what structures make up the borders of the flexion and extension gaps and how adjusting each border with either resection or augmentation can play a role in increasing and decreasing the gap. Remember these three principles we discussed and most of these questions can be easily thought through and answered correctly. The last principle we will discuss in this lecture and probably one of the most important is patellofemoral alignment and tracking and how our cuts in component positioning play a role. Patella maltracking is the most common complication following total knee arthroplasty. It occurs from disruption of the normal Q angle. So how is the Q angle measured? The Q angle is measured as a line from the anterior superior iliac spine to the center of the patella and a line from the center of the patella to the tibial tuberosity. This angle is typically 13 degrees in males and 18 degrees in females. An increase in the Q angle results in an increased lateral subluxation force on the patella leading to mechanical symptoms, pain, and possibly dislocations. A prosthetic patellofemoral joint has less constraint than the native patellofemoral joint and is therefore more prone to maltracking with an increased Q angle. Common errors to increase the Q angle have been tested multiple times in the past. These include internal rotation of the femoral or tibial components, medialization of the femoral tibial components, and placing the patellar component on the lateral aspect of the patella. Conceptually, the proximal and distal aspects of the Q angle can be thought of as fixed and unchanging. Imagine this as two points connected by a rubber band. If you pull the center of the rubber band, you feel tension and stretch placed on that band. The farther you pull, the more tension and stress you feel. This can be thought of as increasing the Q angle and increasing the lateral subluxation force. So anything that results in more of a pull, in other words, more medialization of the patella, increases the Q angle and can result in patella maltracking. So think about how these previous five errors will result in pushing the patella into a more medial position. Both internal rotation of the femoral and tibial components will force the patella medially. In fact, slight external rotation of the femoral component is preferred. The tibial component should be positioned with the center of the base plate lined up over the medial half of the tibial tubercle. Likewise, medialization of the femoral and tibial components also cause the patella to track more medially, thereby increasing the lateral subluxation force. Lateralization of both the tibial and femoral components is acceptable and decreases the Q angle. And finally, this one can be a bit tricky, but if you place the patella component on the lateral aspect of the patella, it will drive the native patella into a more medial position. The center of the patella component should be placed medial to the center of the native patella. All right, but how about rotation? How can we ensure that we place our tibial and femoral components in the appropriate rotation? Well, there are three axes that we use as reference lines to ensure appropriate femoral component rotation. The anterior-posterior axis or white sides line, the trans-epicondylar axis, and the posterior condylar axis. The AP axis, again also known as Whiteside's line, goes from the center of the trochlear groove to the top of the intercondylar notch. Perpendicular to this is the neutral rotation axis. The trans-epicondylar axis goes from the medial to lateral epicondyles, and the goal is to create a posterior distal femoral cut 
parallel to the transepicondylar axis. In fact, you're looking for three parallel lines, the transepicondylar axis, the posterior femoral cut, and the proximal tibial cut, all lining up when staring at the knee while it's flexed. If all three are parallel, you're in good shape. Before we consider the posterior condylar axis, first, remember the distal femoral and proximal tibial geometry. The proximal tibia is in three degrees of varus, meaning it slopes downward medially by three degrees. In order to ensure articular congruency, when viewed with the knee flexed to 90 degrees, the medial femoral condyle needs to be slightly more posterior than the lateral femoral condyle. If you were to draw a line from the tip of the lateral femoral condyle to the tip of the medial femoral condyle, this would be considered the posterior condylar axis, and you would see that it is in approximately 3 degrees of internal rotation in comparison to the transepicondylar axis. You can also imagine that with a hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle, the posterior condylar axis can be in a significantly greater amount of internal rotation. For systems that utilize a posterior condylar axis, the cutting guide will be set to 3 degrees of external rotation so that the posterior femoral cut will be made parallel to the transepicondylar axis. Remember your three parallel lines again, the transepicondylar axis, the posterior femoral cut, and the proximal tibial cut. If the patient has a hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle, and again, this should be suspected with a valgus knee deformity, and you do not account for the increased internal rotation of the posterior condylar axis secondary to that hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle, then your posterior femoral cut may be accidentally made in internal rotation. This will cause internal rotation of the femoral component, which increases the Q angle and leads to patella maltracking, as well as causing the medial compartment to be too tight on flexion. If the patella continues to track laterally and a lateral retinacular release is performed, damaging the superior lateral geniculate artery, the patient runs the risk of developing osteonecrosis of the patella. If malrotation of the components is suspected postoperatively, a CT scan can be ordered to check on the rotation of the axial cuts. Before we finish, let's address two schools of thought on whether or not to resurface the patella or leave it alone. Complications associated with patella resurfacing include component loosening, patella fracture, and avascular necrosis. Patellar clunk is thought to be caused by suprapatellar scar tissue becoming trapped within the posterior stabilized prosthesis distal femoral box when the knee transitions from flexion into extension. Remember that clunk occurs only with posterior stabilized prosthesis, not cruciate retaining. Patella fractures typically occur when too much resection is done during resurfacing. The minimal thickness should be approximately 13 millimeters. Problems with not resurfacing include anterior knee pain, which may result in the need for secondary resurfacing. If the surgeon chooses not to resurface the patella, many will circumferentially denervate the patella with the electrocautery. Absolute indications for patella resurfacing include inflammatory arthritis, patella maltracking, and significant patellofemoral arthritis. A quick word on postoperative rehabilitation. The use of continuous passive motion machines have not been shown to have any long-term benefit. Most surgeons will send their patients to physical therapy on discharge for a couple weeks to work on strengthening and range of motion. It takes about four weeks before the patient is able to drive if it is a right total knee and less than four weeks if it is a left total knee. Alright, that concludes our talk on total knee arthroplasty techniques. 
In the next talk, we will go over the different steps in revision, doing a primary total knee in a patient with patella baja, knee arthrodesis, and complications associated with total knee arthroplasty. Thanks again for listening, and as always, please check back for future lecture updates, modifications, and additions.